John chapter 6. As I said, uh, let's actually, let's, let's review. What uh, is the only miracle, ex- aside from the resurrection account, that is found in all four Gospels? We went over this last week, guys. All right, thank you. And someone was paying attention. <laughs> I thought this was going to be a great unanimous, the feeding of the 5,000. I was like, yes, we are all learning. And then everyone didn't say anything. All right. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that is found in all four Gospels. Now, hopefully it's clear that uh, each of the Gospel writers had a different purpose in their writing. They were presenting something with a specific goal in mind as, as they were writing their version of the account of Christ. The reason that I bring this up is that it's important to remember that this led them to focus on certain events and certain things, particular events. Now, this disciple whom Jesus loved, that we believe to be John, who's writing this gospel, uh, he wrote in John chapter 20, verse 31, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. That's why John recorded the things that he wrote. And so we want to look at, I'm going to look at this passage and pick on, or pick apart uh, why he thought it necessary to include this miracle. We're going to delve into that point because I believe there's much more going on than John is just simply recording a miracle. As with two weeks ago, the application of this teaching is going to be somewhat limited. Um, this teaching is about the why behind John focusing on Moses, not so much. I know, yes, we've been looking at maturity, the theme of maturity, growing up into a mature man, a perfect man, looking like Jesus. This one is going to be simply more uh, looking at his words and uh, trying to teach through them. Last week, I mentioned that it is thought several months have passed between chapter 5 and chapter 6. Some scholars believe it's up to nine months, even a year, that has elapsed between this this account of the feeding of the 5,000 happens in Jesus's third year of ministry. And so there's a big break there. Um, But what what does this even matter? Here's the point. With all that could be written about in the life of Jesus, John intentionally has this time of period, this period of time that is skipped over, and he ends on chapter 5 with a thought, waits nine months or so of Jesus' life, just completely skips over all of his material and happenings and attaches chapter 6 to what was going on in chapter 5. It seems that he has intentionally left out some information so that we would put these two scriptures together. Buckle up, this is going to be a bit bumpy this morning. I actually want to begin at the end of chapter 5. John ends, uh, let's look at verse 39, with Jesus saying, he was defending his testimony why you can believe that he is the Christ. He says, you search, this is 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Now skip on down to 45. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe 
my words. Jesus is saying that if you understood the Torah, the Pentateuch, the Old Testament as we call it, at least the first five, you would see plenty of scriptures pointing to the coming of the Messiah, which is me. You're not hearing his words because you're not accepting me as that one who was to come. And Jesus is attaching himself to that. That's the thought. Moses. Some months later, six months later, nine months later, John recounts the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 6. After these things, quite some time after, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. And then look at verse 4. We looked at this account last week of the feeding of the 5,000. I did not hone in on this. Did you pick up on this? Verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. What does that have to do with anything? I mean, think about it. They're not near Jerusalem, right? Verse 1, he makes it clear. They're not on their way to Jerusalem either. What does it have to do with the story? Why even bother to put that the Passover was near? Is Jesus skipping the Passover? No. He observed the feasts. Why is this seemingly strange verse right there before the account? Here's the order of events. Jesus says that Moses and the scripture point to him, and then what happens is that John pulls this story into the narrative that doesn't even fit really chronologically. He, he thinks it's helpful to skip possibly several months of ministry to link Jesus' words about Moses to this Passover. And then Jesus goes on to supernaturally, watch this, multiply food for the people. Now immediately after this story, John will tell his readers about when Jesus walked on water, which immediately the hearers, perhaps you're seeing the parallel to Moses and Exodus here, the feeding of the 5,000 is hearkening back to manna in the wilderness. And Moses, of Jesus walking on water is a reminder of Moses leading God's people through the Red Sea. Now, this, this crowd is, is thinking that Jesus might be the Moses. He is the Moses that is the, the prophet that has come. They even call him a prophet in verse 14 of chapter 6. And they want to make him a king, verse 15. So John writes that Jesus... At this point, he goes, he, he, he pulls himself away from the crowd because he knew this is not why I'm come. I'm not come to be an earthly king right now. So he escapes to a mountain, which further cements the similarities between Moses and Jesus. How many times did Moses go up Mount Sinai to be with God? And Jesus wants, or excuse me, John wants to, his readers to make this connection. But why? What is the significant? Well, let's get into some new material to see how John narrates this connection between these miracles of the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on a water and Moses. Verse 22. The next day. Remember we left off. Jesus got into the boat. And the boat was immediately on the other side. Verse 22. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got 
into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Now it's common at this point, we understand reading through the Gospel of John that Jesus is using metaphors. He uses a lot of uh, of uh, earthly analogies and metaphors to speak a spiritual truth. We think of perhaps Nicodemus. You must be born again or born from above. And, and, and Nicodemus is totally confused. How can I be born again? Doesn't make sense. Jesus was using this physical happening to teach him about a spiritual truth. The woman at the well. And he, he wants, to, he's offering up this eternal water, this everlasting water to this woman. But sir, you have, you have no uh, bucket and, there, and the, water, the well is deep. How are you going to fetch this water. And then she asked, where can I get this water? Now, not to mention, we see all throughout scripture that the disciples were, were often perceiving Jesus's statements through the lens of materialism or, or circumstance. They were looking at things, Jesus was talking about bread, and he was talking about the, the leaven of the Pharisees, and there was lots of these kinds of things that went on. And let's not also forget that this crowd has just eaten Barley bread. I said last week that barley bread was the bread of the poor. These are poor people, fishermen, farmers. They live in the remote areas. They're not in Jerusalem. And so Jesus is calling them out for their materialistic motives, for seeking him out. Jesus, we couldn't find you. We were getting worried about you because we didn't have any breakfast yet. We didn't know where you were. Now imagine having a king that could give you free bread whenever you needed it. Right? That's great. I I would love that. If if someone just ran on a platform of free food, but not simply handouts, you know, because I'm not a big fan of, you know, paying more taxes to get people more free food. I mean, someone could literally multiply food. I might elect them. Because I, I just love the idea of free... That sounds great, good to me, and I'm not even someone who's starving, right? Look at me. But Jesus is trying to make something a, a much more everlasting and important statement to them. Let's see how they respond to him. He's talking about this food, and he's calling them out for their actions. Verse 28. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Remember what he had just done, right? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Note here who brings up Moses. They did. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. What does the crowd do? Trying to be sneaky, right? Well, show us another sign. We still haven't had breakfast yet. How can we be really sure that God sent you? I don't know. He just showed up on the other side of the sea and you didn't know where he came from after he just fed like fifteen to 20,000 people. 
Not to mention, they were already following him. Why? Because he was healing all the sick. Show us another sign. Our bellies are empty. And so they pit Jesus against Moses. Because Moses had fed their ancestors for 40 years. Oh, we only get one meal from you? And you call yourself sent from God as a, and a prophet. Unsurprisingly, it seems that they've totally missed the reason why they had 40 years. Their ancestors had 40 years of manna, right? Which, let's not forget that they complained about. Oh, we loathe this miserable food. This free food that tastes like honey. How many, how many years of, of free barley do you think it would take before they started complaining? <laughs> right? Why were, they, why were the ancestors getting, why were the Jewish people getting 40 years to begin with, getting manna for 40 years to begin with? That's right. Because they resisted God's plan to deliver them from Canaan. Manna was originally is a blessing from heaven, from God, but it was also a result of their disbelief and became something that they loathed. And, and here they are, they're saying, oh, but, but Moses gave us even more than that. They want to go back to something materialistic. They're completely missing the spiritual that Jesus came to bring. How quickly we forget God's blessings. And we often are guilty of turning them into something materialistic. God does this wonderful spiritual thing, and all we can see is, I need more. Give me more. Give me more, God. Vending machine. We are no better. Don't be too hard on them. But Jesus really wants them to understand that they're not even having the same conversation. Jesus isn't talking about literal bread, is he? Verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it was my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Now they're like, wait, we don't have to eat anymore? Their eyes are, are set on something materialistic, and it was deception. They're missing the point. It sounds a whole lot like this conversation he's having with the woman at the well, doesn't it? But Jesus is ignoring their request for this lifetime supply of free bread to share the gospel message with them. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore, the Jews, watch this, were grumbling about him 
because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They found something to complain about. Perhaps it was because they were hangry, right? They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? You mean to tell me that you never once heard the account that Mary didn't actually get pregnant out of wedlock? You never heard all that? You never saw signs of his youth growing up that he was, you know, something special about his understanding of Scripture? And then, now they've had two years to witness these miracles. Free wine at a wedding. That's where it started. All the sick were being healed, casting out demons. He's feeding a huge crowd of people. And now you're bringing into it his genealogy. I think what happened is they realized they're not about to get some free bread. So they grumble just like their forefathers in the wilderness. And so they shift blame. Suddenly they're worried about his pedigree. We know this guy's parents. They're nothing special. And he wants to convince us that he's come down from heaven. Give us a break. We'll take this food. We're not about to buy this idea that he's directly from God. And again, Jesus speaking in metaphor, right over the heads of most of them, the crowd begins to murmur about what Jesus is saying, but he doesn't even backtrack or clarify his words. He doubles down. Verse 43. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father truly, true. So now Jesus, catch this. Jesus is saying that I've seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus is bringing it back to their argument about Moses and saying, you know, this bread is really nothing. In the end, it's nothing. He's talking about raising them up in the last day, resurrection to, to eternal life. He's saying they ate of that bread, but they eventually died, didn't they? I'm offering you a bread that, that you'll eat and never die. Now, up to this point, the crowd had been thrilled with Jesus. You know, he could heal the sick, he could feed the masses. This appeared to be the long-awaited prophet. But Jesus discerned something defective about their enthusiasm. So he tested their spiritual discernment with a series of increasingly provocative statements. 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. It's getting a little weird. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're, they're thinking cannibalism here. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, 
unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Jesus' words here are extremely difficult for his audience, so challenging, in fact, that many of his disciples ended up leaving him. You can see that in verse 66. We often forget about that, don't we? We're not talking about the 12, they remained. You know, Jesus had more than 12 disciples. We, we need to understand, we need to know that. There was, Luke talks about a 70 that were being sent out, and other places it talks about 120. We can read about those that were witnesses of the resurrection of Christ Jesus. They gathered together in the upper room. There was more than just 12. So there was a big following of Jesus, and they were referred to as disciples. These are not talking about the 12. In verse 66, many of them departed from him because of these difficult words. Jesus says, not only you have to eat my flesh, but you have to drink my blood. Now, I just want to point out here that in, in the law, Moses' law, the Pentateuch, this would be blasphemy for them, for the hearers. Leviticus 3.17 says, it is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. In all your dwellings, you shall not eat any fat or any blood. Deuteronomy 12, 23. Only be sure not to eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. It's easy for us to look back, right? We're familiar with these, this terminology, talking about the body and the blood of Christ. And, you know, we, we, every month at least, we reference that in the Lord's table, communion. It's normal for us. But to someone who was following the law, this would have been very confusing and difficult. So I want, us, I want to caution us a bit against, you know, thinking that, well, obviously we get it. Yeah, well, you've got the Apostle Paul's writing explaining what this means, but you've also got the Holy Spirit inside of you t teaching you and bringing you into truth. Jesus lost a lot of people. Again, why would he do that? Well, it's... It's the same concept that we've talked about before. Jesus is speaking in spiritual metaphor to go over the heads of some and allowing the Holy Spirit to work to draw those that, as he puts it, he has been given, would come into his kingdom. He can't just come out and say, you have to do this and give them this 10-step process to be saved because people would be striving to earn salvation on their own and their own works. But Jesus is saying, you really have to have the Holy Spirit's help to get in the kingdom, is essentially what it is. So he's speaking the spiritual metaphor over them that many of them have turned away. And the disciples, imagine what the twelve are thinking at this point. You had this huge crowd of people following you. They wanted to make you king. We were going to be like your, your rulers of the little cities, right? That's why there's twelve of us, right, Jesus? We're going to sit on thrones with you. And now you're, now you're just discouraging them and they're all dispersing? What are you doing? What's the whole point of this? We gave up everything to follow you. I want to tell you something unrelated. I'm not real big on pleasing people. This church, I don't know if it would be bigger or not, if we watered down the gospel and preached easier things. I want to let you know that just because a church is small does not mean it's doing something wrong. Just because it's big doesn't mean it's bad either. I'm not, I'm not speaking bad against big churches. Jesus had crowds following him. Don't mistake what I'm saying. 
I'm saying even Jesus, because of what he spoke in truth and in love, offended many and turned them away. We need to be mindful of that as the day draws near. People are looking for their ears to be tickled. See, the Jews were forbidden to drink blood. That is exactly what Jesus is telling them to do. And this is why many left and they were beginning to think he was crazy. The fact that Jesus was saying that he was living bread was strange enough. But now he says, drink my blood. That's, that would just be shocking. So what happens next? This Jesus for King movement, this campaign suddenly evaporated. Turns out he was right about their lack of discernment. They were just misunderstanding who he was and they were looking for a handout, free food. They weren't really after him for who he was. Interestingly enough, these wouldn't be the last people that misunderstood these verses. For several thousand years, including Christians, over time, these verses, significant traditions have developed these words into the doctrine of transubstantiation, which is the belief that during the Eucharist, the body of Jesus Christ actually turns into, or the, the bread actually turns into Jesus Christ, and that's what's eaten in the grape juice, the wine, actually turns into the blood of Christ. That's bizarre to me as someone who wasn't raised Catholic. Sounds re really disturbing. But it is clearly not what Jesus meant. How do we know this? Well, he gave us plenty of clues, and we're going to go to the Apostle Paul here in a minute. Verse 54. Jesus says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, this is the third time he's talked about the last day. He's hinting to them that this is not about the here and the now. There's a day coming when I'm going to raise you up. Went right over their head. I don't think Jesus was intentionally trying to be confusing. Let's not misunderstand what I've said about going over their heads. He's speaking by, by the Holy Spirit's guidance. He's only speaking what the Father tells him to speak. But it's, it's going over their head because they're choosing to basically ignore it, to not see the truth of it. 55, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As a living father sent me and I live because of the father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. For Christians, again, it's easy, easy for us to read these words and not be stunned. We're used to this language. The Apostle Paul, he explains what Jesus means. But notice that, that Jesus was not really interested in keeping from offending people. That was not his MO. He wanted to bring truth, and he came to do what God had commanded him to do, and that was to ultimately be a sacrifice for our sins. He was not trying to be the most popular. Now, he was popular at times because of the things that he was doing, but often for the wrong motivation those people were attracted to him jesus was not interested in keeping from offending people and we have to understand that as a church that is faced with societal pressure and changes in culture about small issues and big issues alike the winds of the world have changed right under our feet the gospel is being taken out of churches and eroded away we must stand on the truth, the whole truth of the word of God and not be afraid about it offending people. That's God's business. 
we teach the truth, we present the gospel, the whole gospel, we allow the Holy Spirit to do the rest. God is the judge. He will do as he sees fit in the last day. Now, I said earlier that John wanted his readers to make this connection between Jesus and Moses, but why? What is the significance? You see, they were, they were seeing the resemblance in the work of Christ and Moses, but the problem was they were expecting Jesus to deliver them in the same way that Moses did from Pharaoh. Perhaps you, you haven't put this together, but we actually, the, the, Jesus is prophesied about, and his name was not used, Moses actually wrote about another that was going to come after him. And so they see Jesus as the one who's speaking things out as a prophet would, but also has an understanding of Scripture, seems to be speaking on behalf of God. You remember, they were, they were looking for it. They were looking for this person. They actually came to John the Baptist. Remember in chapter 1, verse 21, the people came to John and they asked him, are you the prophet that we've been waiting for? He says, no, but he's coming after me. So they were on the lookout for hundreds of years. Now, Peter later confirms in Acts chapter 3, verse 22, that Jesus was this prophet that they were waiting on. And then we see things like the miracles. You think all of the miracles that Jesus was doing, Moses was by the hand of God. He was, the miracles were performed. These were signs. This is what the people were looking for. Moses was a lawgiver. Jesus was, was explaining the law to them. Moses was called the intercessor. Jesus was speaking intercessions on behalf of them. There's this the similarity. We've, we've got to see this type and shadow between Jesus and Moses. Forty days. Forty days. They were both known for their meekness or their humility. They were both to lead people out of captivity, one being certainly spiritual. Now, I, I could go on and on about this, but again, the point is should be clear that Jesus and Moses, there's, Moses was a type and shadow. And this is what all of this Moses talk was about in the Gospel of John. John is trying to make this connection for his readers. But they were looking, the crowd was looking to Jesus in the wrong way. They wanted Jesus to be the second Moses as a literal earthly deliverer. But Jesus came in a different way. In fact, he came much more significantly than Moses. He came to deliver them from spiritual bondage. And all this talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood are, are clearly spiritual metaphors hinting about his soon death on the cross. Again, we, we look at this looking back. Excuse me, we read this looking backwards. They didn't have that privilege. Now, fortunately, for me as a pastor trying to explain what Jesus actually meant by drinking his blood, Paul talks about this. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll look there. Just, uh, I want to read a few verses to set the backdrop. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. There's a, a picture, picture here of water baptism and the Holy Spirit baptism. Sea, water, cloud, spirit. They all drank of the same spiritual food and all drank of the spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. 
This is some really deep, heavy theological doctrinal stuff. I love Paul. He's, he's totally grasped this metaphor and this picture of what God was doing in the wilderness. God having his perfect plan. It's saying, oh yeah, you remember that rock that they drank the water from? Well, Christ is the rock. Remember that bread that God supplied? Well, Jesus is the bread. They may not be saved in the exact same way that we are because the cross, the work of Jesus hasn't happened yet, but they were looking forward to it with faith on him. Now, this is just, that's just to set the background. The spiritual food and drink, which is Christ, the man and the water that God provided, are po- pointing to God's provision of Christ Jesus. Hopefully you're getting that. Now, verse 16, 6 through 13, let's read these. Oh, ne- never mind, let's not read these. We're going to skip those for time. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about them. They are about the wicked things that Israel did, and we're going to pick up at verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. What's the context? Idolatry. Idolatry at the Corinthian church. If you read the whole chapter, verses 7, verses 14, verses 19 and 28, it's all about idolatry. Why does it matter? Because Paul is talking. We need to understand the local context here. He's talking about unity and participation among believers. Now let's look at the next verses, uh, starting verse 16. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing, that word is koinonia, in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a koinonia in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation, Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices, shares in the altar. What do I mean then? That a thing offered to, to idols is anything or that, it, that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers. Referencing back to Koinonia, verse 16, in demons, fellowshipping with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now flip over to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Let's look at verse 18 through 22. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there's divisions exist among you. So he's talking now about the church, this division, these different things that have come up in in Corinth that were doing all sorts of things. 19 is about factions. Each of you is taking your supper, verse 21, and hungry, and another one is drunk. All these problems in the church. He's talking about the church. Bigger picture, context of chapter 10 was idolatry, and then he's going to explain what the Lord's Supper is. I know I'm jumping around a lot. Try to hang with me. I'm going to try and put this all together. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Sounds a whole lot like John 6, doesn't it? You've got to eat of my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now we understand what communion is about. It's about proclaiming the death of the Lord. 
in doing it in remembrance of the death that he died for us. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That's echoing back to chapter 10. Doing it with idolatry. Chapter 11, with divisions, with drunkenness. What Paul is saying is that there is a koinonia in fellowship centered around the Lord's table. When you take of the body of Christ Jesus, the bread, and when you take the nectar of the grapevine and drink of his blood, you are not only attaching yourself to the work of Christ on the cross, you're, you're, you're putting yourself sort of symbolically there with him. And you're remembering that act of what he did of, of death so that you could be raised up in the last day. You are actually participating in koinoniaing with other believers. Therefore, do not do anything idolatrous. Because idolatry is putting anything else in front of God and worshiping it. Not that we ought to worship the act of communion. We're worshiping the act of Christ Jesus and remembering it. He's saying, don't be don't neglect that there is power, there is significance in this taking of my body and drinking of the blood. It is actually a spiritual thing that is going on behind the scenes. And so we have to do it reverently. And he goes on to say that for this reason, some of you are sick and even die because you're not doing it in the right manner. Why? The church is one body. There must be a purity around the Lord's table. Because what you do in sin and then participate with the cup in the body of Christ Jesus is extended to the rest of the body. Koinonia. You fellowship with each other, therefore keep it pure and holy. The thing that the Corinthians were guilty of was not taking seriously enough this participating together in the body of Christ. Paul taught that when we take the bread and the wine together, it connects us to these believers, other believers in an intimate way. Now, Paul was writing to these Corinthians that they shouldn't make these sacrifices to demons and pretend that everything's okay. This is what we do, right? We go on sinning, we come to church, we pretend everything's fine, we just take of the, the cup and willy-nilly, or perhaps if we're righteous, we'll spend a few moments confessing our sins right before because we've been brought up that this is holy and to be revered, right? But yet, we only do that once a month, right? So once a month, if we're good Christians, good little boys and girls, we confess our sins before, oh yeah, I gotta, what did I do this last month? God, forgive me for my sins this past month. Church, I hope you understand it's much bigger than that. <laughs> Just as a, as a separate note, I will never judge you if the plate comes around and you pass on it. In fact, I would probably respect you more for being aware of yourself and your state spiritually to say, you know what, I better not take of this. Just throwing that out there. 
Don't take of it irreverently. You should not come to church and make a mockery of the Lord's table. It's an act that unites us together in this deep spiritual level. So don't bring your idolatry, don't bring your sin into it. So when Jesus was talking to this crowd about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he was telling them that they would have to unite to him in his work in a spiritual way. You've got to believe in me on faith, with faith. And when you do that, you're going to actually share in my work of the cross. You're going to participate, koinonia, fellowship with me, and, and I'm going to do it and extend it to you. How's it going to be extended to us? By sharing at the Lord's table. It's not this act that saves us. Don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm not saying that taking of the communion is what gets you saved. By grace through faith. That's it. Not by any work so that a man may boast. It's solely on putting your faith in Christ Jesus. But symbolically, this is a reminder. He's saying that this is what you experience. You remember the, the criminal on the cross. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. They didn't have a chance to take communion together, right? Communion doesn't save you. But symbolically, it's a reminder that we are saved in Christ by participating with his death and then one day in the resurrection, that last day. Church, I ask and hope that you don't miss the depth of the Lord's table. Jesus was trying to explain it to the crowd, and if we could just apply this concept, of these, this teaching, it's a deep truth here. This is what he was saying. He's saying, I'm more than Moses. Your ancestors missed what was the point of the manna and the water. They were more than just something to eat. It was a provision from God, and it was going to point to me. I want you to see the power of God. This is Jesus. He's, he's saying, first, you have to attach yourself to why you're here. This is the promised land. I'm bringing you into the promised land, but you have to eat of my food and my drink in order to get there, or you're going to starve in the desert. You need to participate me in, in, in my death and resurrection. You need to recognize that I'm not here just to meet your physical needs. I'm here to meet them spiritually. Jesus was that spiritual Moses who's bringing us into the promised land. It's the spiritual eating and drinking that mediates a spiritual reality. And when we're taking of the elements, we share symbolically in Jesus' atonement. How many of you have seen the Lord's, uh, The Passion of Jesus Christ by Mel Gibson? Most of us, half of us. For those that have seen it, you remember, and Mady was talking about this morning in Sunday school. Remember that quietness and that sinking feeling in your gut, like, wow, that was for me. And I remember walking out of the theater as a, as a teenager and thinking, I never want to sin again. Like, I was just totally convicted. And I said, I never want to watch this movie again. <laughs> right? And it wasn't even as bad as it really was. Like, as, as hard as it was to watch the beating of Christ Jesus, it would have been much worse in person. Well, I did end up watching it again, and I had that exact same feeling like 15 years later. I never want to watch this again. Church, when we partake of the Lord's table together, that's the feeling we ought to have. Sincerity and reverence. Perhaps even sorrow coupled with thanksgiving. This is what Jesus did for me. Because we are koinonia. We are fellowshipping with his death and resurrection in this very moment when we take it. Now there's a lot about the miracle and the loaves and the fishes that is interesting, the boy, the bread, the, the crowd, but John wants his readers to make this connection between Moses and this miracle. He takes time to go out of his way and say, Jesus is that Moses. 
but he came on a spiritual, he came to do it spiritually. And he's using this miracle to point to something that is much greater. There's, mu- much, there's something much more important than just filling your, your bellies with your daily bread. While this manna could fill your bellies, it would never fill your spirit. And Jesus wants us to remember that his work by sharing in his death and resurrection is what we do. We participate in it when we take of the Lord's table. This is as close as you're going to get, by the way, in, in the Gospel of John to the Lord's table. This is him sharing it, his version of it. Remember he talked about creation in a different way? He uses it with spiritual analogy. Just remember that it's more than just remembering Jesus' death. This is a spiritual reminder to the devil that he's defeated. We participate and declare in the heavenly realm that not only was Jesus dead, but he's been resurrected again. That reminds the devil. I'm in Christ Jesus. My sins are, are taken away. You know, in the same way we are reverent about taking them, we should come up victorious and rejoice at the end of it. I'm with Christ. I'm chosen. I'm declared. I'm victorious in Christ Jesus. Remind the devil that you are a sharer in the divine nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. 